Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Welcome back to another interview episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter. Today's episode is a topic-based show where I brought in a return guest, Dave Feldman, and a new guest, Dr. Nick Norwitz. Dave first appeared on the show way back in the beginning. It was episode 11, I believe, for anyone interested. Nick is a new guest, but I will be having him back on HPO in the future to go over his story, background, research, and dietary preferences. So look forward to that coming out down the road. For this episode, we dove into a topic around a group of individuals who are being called lean mass hyper responders. Simply put, these individuals experience very high LDL blood cholesterol readings, despite having otherwise great health markers. Over the years, this group of individuals has often been discussed in a polarizing light. Some saying they are being incredibly risky, while others saying they represent a unique population who aren't at nearly the risk standard LDL research would suggest. The reality is we really do not know for sure, so steps are being taken to find out and research this group of people. The beginning of this search is a paper that essentially can be summed up as a formal introduction to take future steps in studying this population. If you have been following it online, you may have been flooded with both vocal skeptics and believers. For this reason, I wanted to chat with Dave and Nick about what exactly this paper indicates and what the next steps are for lean mass hyperresponders. All right, before we jump in with Nick and Dave, just a few show announcements and updates. Uh, first off, some future guests coming on the show. Uh, Dr. Mark Bubbs is returning to the show to talk about all things nutrition and training and help us understand context when it comes to focusing on specific types of athletes and types of sports in terms of how they fuel their bodies. Also coming on the show is Ben Patrick, or as a lot of folks listening probably recognize as the knees over toes guy. Uh, ben has been probably one of the most requested guests for the HPO podcast. So I was really excited to find out that he was visiting Austin and uh, wanted to meet up. So we actually met up, went through a workout. He put together like a six move workout that he thought would be a really good thing for me to start incorporate, incorporating into my training to kind of take another step forward after doing quite a bit of work with the zero program that his, his company athletic truth group has put out. So we went through that workout together and then we sat down and chatted about it. So he filled me in with all the hows and whys as to what we were doing, why we were doing it and just dove into the details a little bit further. So look for that one to come out down the road. Both those episodes are already up on Patreon. So if you want to support the show and get ad-free early release, that is a spot to check out, which you can link over to on the show hosting page, which is zachbetter.com forward slash HPO. Links to that are in the show notes. Uh, also, I ended 2021 by starting a newsletter. So if you are interested in subscribing to it, please head over to my website at zachbetter.com. You can link over to the sign up on the front page or head straight to it at zachbetter.com forward slash newsletter to sign up. My goal is to eventually get to a point where I'm sending out a newsletter every two weeks. You can also follow me on social media channels if you wish to receive updates about what I'm up to, as well as newsletter release things and, and all that stuff. Those channels include Instagram at zachbetter, Twitter at zbitter, 
Facebook at Zbitter Endurance and TikTok at Zach Bitter. And if you want to follow my training and get updates on that channel, Strava is the one to go. And you can just search my name at Zach Bitter there and link up with me on that platform if you wish. All those links are also in the show notes if interested in linking over through there. If you enjoyed this podcast and wish to support either monetarily or by sharing, liking, and subscribing, please head over to zachbetter.com forward slash HPO for options, which include my show Patreon page, as mentioned earlier. You can also, if you want to make a quick one-time donation without a lot of extra steps, joining any third parties, you can make direct donations with either credit or debit cards at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO through the donation link there. Uh, Cool. You can also support HPO through the show sponsors. Details on all the discounts and promotions from HPO show sponsors can be found at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. That link is also in the show notes. Sponsoring this episode are my friends at Athletic Greens. I have been using AG1, their flagship product, since I was tipped off by it from Lex Fridman when I went on his podcast this last year. So what is Athletic Greens? Athletic Greens is a product that uh, is a powder and you can pour it into six to eight ounces of water. It comes packed with 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. Athletic Greens works with their in-house dietitian to continually update and improve their formula as the research evolves. I believe we should strive to meet as much of our micronutrient needs through healthy whole food options, but this can often be difficult as we demand more from our bodies and navigate busy schedules, especially when traveling. Personally, I prefer to start my day with a single scoop of AG1 with two drops of their D3K2 tincture that also comes with your first order of AG1 for free in the quantity of a year's supply. So you get that. I like to mix two drops in there with a scoop of AG1, 68 ounces of cold water on an empty stomach. That's my morning protocol when it comes to that. Uh, You also get with your first order of AG1, a five packet of uh, travel servings. So there's these little sachets that have the AG1 product in it. You'll get five of those. You can throw them in a bag, gym bag, travel bag, whatever, and have them with you when you're on the go. You can check all of this out and see if it's a good fit for you at athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO. Be sure to throw in the forward slash HPO to let them know that you're coming there through the HPO podcast. If you have discovered you are lacking some key nutrients or simply want to ensure you are getting the ultimate nutritional insurance, check out Athletic Greens and see if it fits your lifestyle and needs all while supporting the HPO podcast. By supporting HPO through Athletic Greens, you also support sustainability and healthy nutrition for kids in need. Athletic Greens is climate neutral certified and with every purchase donates to charities in need like No Kid Hungry in the U.S., athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO gets you the free year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five travel servings of AG1 to go with your first bag of AG1. Links are in the show notes and at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Just a reminder, all HPO sponsors can be 
seen at that website, zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. That's where all the details, discounts, and links are located. So if you're interested in checking out all the show sponsors or to get the details and links, that is the best spot to head to. All right, folks, now let's get on to the interview. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm joined by two guests this time. It's been a while since I've had a, had a two-guest or a three-person podcast here since solo hosting HPO, but I'm excited to welcome back Dave Feldman and for the first time, Nick Norwitz. Thank, guys, thanks for taking some time out of your evening to jump on a call with me. Thanks for having us on. Thanks, Zach. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I've been wanting to chat with you, Nick, for a while, and uh, it's just been kind of busy. So I found as many excuses I come up with to, to not get one scheduled with you. But we have you on here now to, to talk about some some recent uh, interactions that are not interactions, but some recent stuff that's been going on around a topic that has been uh, talked about on the show before when, when Dave's been on around the kind of the concept of like a low a lean mass hyper responder. And uh, I'll let Dave, uh, if you want, if you want to just kind of give us a little bit of a, an outline of what a lean mass hyperresponder is and why that may be important for someone who finds themselves being one. Uh, sure. Well, of course, it, I my story began really in about April of 2015 when I started a ketogenic diet. As you know, about seven months in, I saw that my cholesterol was pretty high and I'd heard this term hyperresponder, which predates me. Um, I believe Peter Atia used it and Thomas Dayspring to just basically elucidate that for some folks who go on a low carb diet, they see their cholesterol rise substantially. And this was surprising to me because at around the same time I started the low carb diet, my father and my sister had also started and they'd gotten their blood work before me. So I, I figured since they didn't show this pronounced increase, I probably wasn't given I'm, you know, first degree relative. So it, it really surprised me a lot that my cholesterol not only jumped up, but that it was very counter to what was going on with the two of them. So then my journey began, as you know, I did a lot of experiments where I could then start changing it around. I started developing uh, the bones of what's becoming the lipid energy model today. But over time, I definitely noticed in trying to find these different patterns that there was a very uh, pronounced pattern for those folks who tended to be leaner, and especially if they were athletic. You've probably heard me talk about the triad before. It's not just having the high LDL, but it's also having high HDL and low triglycerides. And this pattern was so seemingly ubiquitous that I went ahead and set some cut points to it based on these patterns I was observing. And the cut points I had for lean mass hyperresponders, I set as an LDL of 200 or higher, an HDL of 80 or higher, and triglycerides of 70 or lower. And I, I was running the cholesterolcode.com blog at the time. I wasn't that well known yet, but at the time that I was putting it up, I was thinking, you know, it may just be, these are the people I happen to run into. It could be, this is not that unique. And I was quite surprised that actually, no, there were, there were an, an enormous number of people within the low carb community uh, that had those cut points, even for as rare as each of those are individually, had them together to such a point where the phenotype uh, was common enough that we eventually put together a Facebook group. And that ended up uh, you know, expanding to where now we have like 7,500 members. And that takes us up to 2021, where I finally got to connect with Nick Norwitz and uh, we started talking about putting this together in a paper. Awesome. Yeah, Nick, uh, if you want to jump in and just give us kind of a little bit of a background on how you kind of got involved with this, were you a lean mass hyper responder and just kind of a little bit of your background as well as how you and Dave kind of got connected? 
Yeah, for sure. My background uh, paralleled Dave's in a lot of ways. So um, uh, after I finished uh, college, I went to, to Dartmouth for undergrad. I went to the UK, uh, to Oxford, to do my PhD. And uh, I wasn't doing so hot at the time. Uh, a few years prior, when I was you know younger, I was a, a marathon runner, very athletic, super healthy, at least on the surface. I started dealing with a lot of my own metabolic health issues, bone problems, um, and then gut problems. Those are probably the worst for me. Some very severe colitis that ended up hospitalizing me a few times, um, pulled my heart rate down to like the twenties. And I was just like, I felt like on death's doorstep. They even put me in the palliative care ward at one point, which is a little bit scary for a 23 year old living in a new country. But that aside, okay. I became pretty desperate and started experimenting with a bunch of different things, uh, including eventually, uh, a ketogenic diet and on the upside it was the first thing in a long time that actually made me feel good. My inflammation markers dropped uh, to the lowest they've been in years. My uh, stomach stopped hurting all the time. The blood stopped and I felt great. But uh, a little bit later, I got a lipid test and was <coughs> astonished to find my LDL had gone from 95 to 321. Um, my HDL had gone up as well. My triglycerides were quite low, but this really shocked me. Um, it shocked me because, you know, I was pretty familiar with what, uh, you know, typically considered healthy lipids were actually both my parents are physicians and I have been entrenched in academia most of my life. So this really surprised me. Um, and I started doing some research into it. Uh, very ironically, I was, I was, not much into social media. I would have my head buried in books, uh, you know, at a, what, 800 year old college <laughs> and, and just started studying this completely naive to what had been going on with Dave. This was in 2019. So, you know, at this point, the lean mass hyper responders blog had been up for two years, but I had no clue what it was about. And so I came up with some of my own ideas, parallel ideas, I actually even wrote a paper on it. Uh, and again, this was all without knowing Dave. Um, but then as I become, became more interested in low carb, I just started getting involved in the community, you know, listening to uh, lectures by people going to, you know, online conferences. And then I started hearing Dave speak. And it was really interesting for me because I'm used to hearing like, you know, uh, well, I go down the hall, I listen to like Jennifer Doudna speak. She's the one that just got the Nobel Prize for CRISPR, like, you know, some serious luminaries. And now I'm hearing the software engineer who's not even, you know, supposed to be in academia giving these talks that are really insightful and compelling and i'm like this is cool this explains so much and it's also explaining a phenotype that's kind of around me so then i got very interested and um, me and dave ended up connecting and i i, I feel fortunate to say i can you know i feel like dave you're not only a great uh influencer in my life in a positive way i know you don't like that word but uh also one of my favorite colleagues and one of my really good friends, like a, like an older brother. So we just hit it off. And this past summer, Dave, myself, and um, my friend, Adrian, who actually was doing um, a PhD with me at Oxford, he's a clinician um, practicing in Mexico city, just had the best summer on endless zoom calls, writing and rewriting this paper to produce um, first concrete evidence for uh, the, lean mass hyperresponder phenotype. And so we can get into the, the results of the paper that we put together and um, how you know, we think it's gonna really start a conversation about, around this really important phenomenon.
Yeah, I definitely want to jump into kind of the paper and the results and everything. Uh, but maybe just right before we do that, if we can just highlight what would constitute a lean mass hyper responder. Is there like a threshold one has to pass with a certain profile to kind of get into the lean mass hyper responder category? Yeah. Now, of course, the the very first thing that I'll qualify is that these are these are cut points that I was choosing based on very arbitrary pattern recognition. So the the first is an LDL of two hundred or higher, uh, which for your listeners, if you if you're not already familiar with this, this is already double what the recommended range is. So it's it's already considered very hyperlipidemic. Um, and in fact, uh, I believe that the existing guidelines would consider you as likely to have FH if you have 190 and higher. Um, you, it's also though a combination with two other lipid markers, HDL, the so-called good cholesterol at 80 milligrams per deciliter or higher and triglycerides of 70 milligrams per deciliter or lower. This, this triad you often see in those folks who are typically presumed to be more metabolically healthy Anyway, in the low carb community, these, these combinations, you probably heard many times over, people will say, if you go on a ketogenic diet, you tend to see your HDL go up and your triglycerides go down. Um, we have some thoughts on that as it relates back to the energy model, but in, in particularly with folks who seem to be especially lean and especially uh, fit, uh, who tend to have very low fat mass relative to lean mass, um, this pattern tended to be a lot more pronounced. And so that, that ended up being kind of the cut points we used. But um, to steal just a little bit of Nick's thunder, we then ended up uh, through the, I mean, absolutely fantastic help of Adrian, uh, work through what's known as a hypothesis naive approach on actually basically letting the computer determine the new cut points for us. So think of it as we just take what I just mentioned, throw it out the window, and then say, hey, if we give you a bunch of survey data, because we had a standing survey of a thousand uh, folks, and then we went ahead and narrowed it down to those who are on a carb restricted diet. So at least, you know, 130 grams or below. Um, what would you computer say would be the most important factors that would influence changes in LDL levels? And in that respect, there were two big ones. And I'll, I'll, I'll let Nick, Nick take it from there because the two big ones I was very excited about given what happened in 2017. Um, I'm going to build the suspense a little bit more. And just, I, I, I want to circle back to the cut points you mentioned, because I want to highlight some things about them, really two things in particular. Um, the one is, like you said, you know, an LDL of 200 is quite high. It's very rare to pass that threshold. It's also very rare to pass the threshold of 80 milligrams per deciliter HDL and rare to pass the threshold of below 70 milligrams per deciliter triglycerides. So for these three things to occur in tandem, it's very unlikely to happen by chance. For it to happen, it's much more likely to be part of, you know, a combination profile that these things are somehow interacting. And we'll get into that when we talk about the lipid energy model, if we end up having time to do that. But another thing I want to highlight is that while high LDL is certainly a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, if you look at the landscape of atherosclerosis now, it's, you know, LDL levels have been stable or dropping due to innovations in, um, LDL lowering therapies, PCS canine inhibitors, Zetamib, et cetera. Uh, if you want a paper on this, you can read Peter Libby's Changing Landscape of Atherosclerosis. I think it was in Cellular Nature. Uh, it was published this year. And um, the major risk factor, or the more common risk factor now, is atherogenic dyslipidemia, which is the high triglycerides 
and the low HDL, which go along with metabolic syndrome. So what we see now as a common um, risk profile is not high LDL, but this atherogenitus lipidemia, the high triglycerides and the low HDL suggesting metabolic dysfunction. Um, and part of this triad is yes, it's the high LDL, but it's the high LDL with the opposite of atherogenic dyslipidemia, the complete opposite. So it's kind of interesting when you propose this phenotype that, you know, okay, the high LDL is unhealthy or presumed to be unhealthy. Why is it occurring in the context of the opposite of atherogenic dyslipidemia? And what we found to get to the punchline was that when we engaged, engaged in this hypothesis naive analysis, which didn't, doesn't mean we didn't have a hypothesis, but it meant the way we went about um, exploring the data through this you know, computer algorithm, the, the computer didn't know what our hypothesis was. Basically, we took all the data we had from the respondents. We had data on their BMI, their age, their sex, uh, their lipids before and while on low carb. And we threw all those data in and said, computer, you know, tell us what are the predictors of having a large LDL change. And the two, two things that came out were one, body mass index, and two, triglyceride to HDL ratio. Both were inversely correlated with LDL change. In other words, it was specifically the lean, metabolically healthy people who were having the large increases in LDL. And if you go to figure two in the paper, and I really do encourage everybody to kind of download the paper, try to read it. I think it's a pretty easy read. Figure two makes a very clear point if you look at nothing else. It's a 3D bar graph. And you have two axes, one's triglyceride to HDL ratio, one's BMI, and the height of the bar is LDL change. And what you see is you go along either axis and LDL change gets larger and larger and larger, such that in the quartile with the um, lowest BMI and lowest triglyceride to HDL ratio, the mean, or actually I think it's a median, LDL change was 135. So that was the increase in LDL, which is massive. It's larger than anything that's been reported in the literature previously. Um, in a cohort of this size. So that was really interesting. That was interesting finding number one. And that really set us up to then analyze, you know, the lean mass hyperresponders, which up until this point, I've just been a theorized group. Literally, you go to, you know, clinicians, cardiologists, and they basically don't believe this phenotype really exists, or at least that's not prominent. So we went, we had 548 people in the study and asked the question, you know, how many people are bona fide lean mass hyperresponders, real LMHR, meaning they pass all three of these really extreme cup points, which I said before, you know, it'd be rare to pass these in isolation. And it turned out 18% of participants, hundred people, actually hundred on the dot were lean mass hyperresponders, meaning they cut past all of these cup points. And then what we did was, you know, um, analyze them and said, well, first, are they leaner? Because the thing about the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype, it actually has nothing to do definitionally with leanness. It's just these metabolic cup points. And yet Dave can tell you, and I can tell you, you can do a party trick by basically saying, you know, if somebody's low carb, you look at their lipid levels and you can kind of tell them what their body habitus is. And what this, this paper showed was that is indeed the case. Like the lean mass hyperresponders were substantially leaner. Like the p-value was 10 to the negative 16th or something crazy. Maybe it was 11th, 10 to the negative 11th or 10th. Um, than the non-lean mass hyperresponders. So I think mean BMI was 22, which is pretty lean. And um, importantly, their starting LDL, so before low carb, was not at all different. P-value was like 0.85. In fact, I think the median value was a little bit lower in the lean mass hyperresponders prior to going keto. 
So this relative, was, to non, relative to the non-lean mass hyperresponders. Yes. So yes, basically lean mass hyperresponders versus non-lean mass hyperresponders had nearly identical LDL before then going on a low-carb diet. Yeah, okay. they were like 132 for lean mass hyperresponders and 134 for non-lean mass hyperresponders. But then like the, the mean LDL for lean mass hyperresponders was like 320 with mean HDL like 99 and triglycerides of like 47. A really, really like extreme, remarkable, scientifically remarkable um, profile. And so, I mean, those are the main uh, points of the, the bulk of the study. We also had a case series, which we can talk about in a minute, but I've been going on for a while. So I want to pause, see what questions you have and what uh, additions Dave wants to add. All right, folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are Athletic Greens. With your first order of AG1, their flagship product, you will get a free one-year supply of vitamin K2, D3, as well as five free travel-serving packets of AG1. So if you're looking to get 75-plus nutrients in an easy-to-consume package, Head over to athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO or check them out on the show sponsor landing page at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. One thing I was going to ask, and I think I know the answer to this based on what you said, but is it, so have we seen any lean mass hyper responders outside of the low carb community? It's basically specific to low carb, correct? Pretty much. Yeah. I, I will say that we do have a community. Of course, a Facebook community, as I mentioned earlier, that's got thousands of uh, LMHRs. Um, I will say that there's a couple individuals who are extraordinary exercisers. I don't know if you might know a thing or two about that, Zach, but <laughs> uh, people who, again, this also seems to kind of fit the model that effectively if, um, however it is that one has um, kept their glycogen stores low, let me put it that way, hmm. would seem to be likely that there would be reason for the body to circulate and traffic fat. Uh, that's, I think, a major uh, foundational point for the lipid energy model. And so there are, at least that I'm aware of a couple folks that probably are closer to say 100 to 150 carbs per day, uh, but that are, I mean, super like daily, heavily, you know, very active exercisers but still have close to lean mass hyperresponder phenotype. Now that said, I do not, that's like the biggest of the outliers that I'm aware of. I don't, I really don't know of anybody who would say be higher than that, who would be say 200 carbs or more, certainly nobody on a mixed diet that has this specific profile. Uh, but to be fair, to be a good scientist, you know, I'm not usually seeing a lot of um, labs from folks that are outside of the low carb community but I do regularly ask other GPs that I meet that are outside the low carb community. Do you ever see the triad? Particularly, do you ever see anything close to what we'd see with lean mass hyperresponders? And I've looked at the NHANES data, which, you know, it's around like 40, 50,000 folks. And I saw two out of <laughs> that total amount. So it is a fairly, I, I think it really is something that's very distinctive towards this context of metabolic fat adaptation. I would say though that eating 100 grams of carbs, well, actually, that, we defined it as low carb. Low carb is defined generally medically as less than 130. But also, if you're you know running marathons or eating 5,000 calories a day and eating even 150 grams of carbs, you're still kind of low carb. Yeah, true. I would say 
Yeah, yeah, this is my ballpark. <laughs> I think uh, uh, doubling your metabolic rate through exercising and eating 100 to 150 grams of carbohydrates, I think just generally when I'm in that range, I'm probably putting up between one and a half to two millimoles of ketones. So from a ketogenic standpoint, if you're just yeah. looking at it from, from that, you're definitely going to do that uh, with that sort of a lifestyle. I think the other interesting thing is what you guys kind of alluded to, uh, whether it was on purpose or not, is within the endurance running community, you also have this kind of approach that you'll see a little more frequently. Well, you'll see it all the time with the low carbers and the ketogenic ones, just because they, they're kind of like adapted to do it. But what you'll see is you'll see the moderate high carbers try to kind of hack the system a little bit by doing like fasted long runs and things like that, or they're eating the same amount of carbohydrates, but they're backloading them to the second half of the day on certain days of the week or certain phases of the training cycle in order to increase their fat oxidation rates without necessarily minimizing the carbohydrate fuel source. So it would be really interesting to see whether that up mobilization of fat oxidation rates, even in the context of say a moderate carbohydrate diet with that lifestyle thing would, would push them maybe closer to it. It sounds like maybe they'd still have too many carbohydrates at that point, but, uh, yeah, it's just an interesting, uh, it, it'd be interesting to see like if, if that group of people has any, any different blood markers because of that, that rearranging of their macronutrients a little bit. Yeah. I think it's all on a continuum. So I think they probably see a trend towards the LMHR phenotype. Um, but low carb is permissive. I would say to the phenotype, but then the exercise kind of fine tunes it, tweaks it. So my hypothesis would be if, you know, all things being equal, if you have someone in a low carb diet and you just make them run more than they normally do, keep them at weight maintenance. I think that their triad will become more extreme. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So second question with that too, is let's skew back towards low carb and even strict keto. Uh, is there, what happens with like the types of fat sources? So if you say like somebody who's primarily saturated fat versus someone who's going like mono and polyunsaturated fat is the primary source, are you seeing variances with the types of fats that are being eaten and in, in where they kind of fall in this, or does it kind of happen regardless of that? Do you want me to do, 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 do the honors, Dave? Of course, Nick. This is, so, this so is yes. question just for Nick. <laughs> I think this is the number one thing we get. Oh, the, the lean mass hyper responders are just guzzling saturated fat. They're just drinking butter. Um, so uh, if you want, you want, well, anyway, I won't go back to the paper on that, but um, you'd be surprised how much we get that. So first of all, before getting into any anecdotal data, I just want to pose, you know, that possibility when you're looking at the data that we have, because if we're saying that BMI is strongly correlated with LDL change. And that triglyceride to HDL ratio, well, these are inversely correlated, is also strongly inversely correlated with LDL change, including pre-low carb triglyceride to HDL ratio. If you then suppose that saturated fat is driving the relationship primarily, what you're implicitly saying is that saturated fat intake is strongly associated with being lean and with good metabolic health markers and with good metabolic health markers even prior to starting the low-carb diet such that it was the lean, healthy people that when they went low-carb selectively ate saturated fat. There's like, 
it seems like a very unlikely scenario. Yeah, I, to, to suss out these causal directions that that Nick's referring to, like again, we it, it seems to us to be the most likely explanation that as one is leaner and they see the more pronounced uh, increase in LDL, absent the information, because our survey did not have information on saturated fat intake, absent that information, if somebody were to pose, hey, I think the saturated fat is what is causing the higher LDL, but seeing how closely it correlates with the lower BMI, then it seems suggestive that the more saturated fat you have, the more you cause both a higher increase in LDL and a decrease in BMI dose dependently. That seems a little bit hard. That seems a little more far-fetched, but the most incredible case to date of a lean mass hyperresponder that I know is very pronounced lean mass uh, and very much showing the triad in spades, but yet is on a very low saturated fat diet relative to most others, uh, particularly who are like say, carnivore and so forth, is my good friend and colleague, Nick Norwitz. <laughs> so what I didn't say earlier, Zach, is when I initially went low carb, I was, you know, I was and generally am pro like a Mediterranean style approach in part because I have a bias towards it. I just love that kind of food. Uh, in fact, I have a Mediterranean cookbook. Like I, I really just do love eating that way. I do like steak too, but I eat a lot of olive oil and fish. And when I said my LDL went from 95 to 321 in the first six months, as, as I mentioned earlier, that was eating like no red meat, no cheese, about 35 to 40 grams of fiber per day. Like, you know, everything that you would think would lower LDL. And yet I still went up to 321. Now, for therapeutic reasons for my gut, my fiber intake has come a little bit down. And also there's more adaptation. So over the years, my LDL has kind of fluxed around. But what I can tell you is my highest, I have pretty fastidious records. And my highest ever LDL was measured at 545. That's 545 up from um, 95. And at that point in time, I actually have saturated, uh, you know, a saturation profile on my intake. I was eating, I can give you the details, um, 3,225 calories per day, exercising 10.75 hours per week. Net carb intake was 18 grams protein, 113 grams fat, 304 grams. So it was 84% fat. And my dietary fat profile was 15% saturated. 71% mono and 40, 14% poly. So 85% unsaturated fat diet. My LDL was um, 545 alongside a HDL of 113 and uh, triglycerides of something like 40, I think. Um, something like that. I don't remember the exact numbers from that moment in time, but uh, yeah. I mean, I typically eat a very, there have been periods when I eat more saturated fat, but honestly, I can tell you that my BMI is a much stronger predictor of my LDL than my uh, saturation, hmm. saturated fat intake. So as your BMI decreases, your LDL goes up essentially. Yep. And so I've been able to maintain an LDL slightly lower for me by putting on about 10 pounds, which is great for me. I don't have a very easy time putting on weight, but um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to, to, to peacock or chest beat about my LDL. I'm not necessarily even comfortable with it, but, um, you know, I, I'm, well, we can, we can get into the risk stuff later. I just want to caution just right now, because I, I can understand this being misheard. Um, this isn't something I am proud of. It is a state I find myself in 
And it's been a very personal decision about how I deal with this via lifestyle, via medication. I'm happy to share about that. This doesn't seem like the time right now. But um, yeah, one of the things I've done to lower my LDL is actually just put on weight, which I'm totally fine with. Um, granted, my LDL is still like above 400, but it's lower than 550. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. And does, yeah, we'll have you back on, Nick. I think we'll just do a thorough, like, discussion of kind of your background and all your, all your details. So when folks can really get to know kind of why you sit where you sit and all that stuff. Um, but just to kind of follow up on that question is, are there other people too that have kind of a similar profile as you that have seen that same scenario? Or I guess, I guess the other way to ask that question is, have you seen anyone go that route and actually seen theirs come back down and no longer be in that lean mass hyper respond or like triad? I mean, I can tell you that I have other family members. Again, there's a genetic compound there that are low carb that have a profile like mine and don't eat a ton of saturated fat. But my, my sampling pool is obviously very biased in that respect. I, I can, I have probably a bit more access on this one because of the groups like the lean mass hyperresponder group. That's a common thread that gets brought up often uh, because of course, many in the group are some, some in the group are very comfortable with their high LDL. Some are not comfortable with their high LDL. And, and we're very encouraging of everybody being able to just be open to the wide spectrum of opinions. There are definitely threads that start where people say, Hey, you know, what success have you seen in dropping your, you know, uh, saturated fat in particular, but keeping all else the same, trying to just up your mono and your poly and so forth. And thus far, really, even before this paper, it was always kind of touch and go, uh, but I, I don't know that it's been very common at all for uh, somebody to be truly super low carb and particularly low fiber who have really upped their MUFA, their monounsaturated fatty acids, and have seen like a, you know, a secession of the lean mass hyperresponder profile. Um, there does seem to be a few cases where like the polyunsaturated fats have gotten um, to fairly, you know, large extents is the primary source of fat. For example, yeah. I know somebody who had like grapeseed oil, uh, as kind of their primary <sighs> source of fat, but wasn't able to maintain it for very long. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that I, I, that, that I have played around with sesame oil in particular. I think it's actually a fascinating lipid in particular lipid source that seems somewhat effective. It does attenuate the phenotype. It doesn't erase it. And I was only able to keep it up for a certain amount of time before things happened. Yeah. At a certain point, what you put on paper has to be done in practice. <laughs> yeah. Having half a cup of like oil or sesame oil <laughs> at a, after a while, just like I'll, I'll take the extra 50. I'll, I just, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, it's, it's all interesting stuff. I was, uh, I, I, I was curious about that. Cause I mean, w I think one interesting lack of context you oftentimes see for people when we're talking about low carbohydrate diets is just not either understanding or appreciating the vast array of ways you could actually formulate one. So, yeah. like, you know, you talk to like vegan keto people and then there's, uh, you know, the carnivore keto people and, and then everything in between. So there's like a lot of different ways to mix and match the foods to get yourself low carb. But that is interesting that the, that the lean mass hyperresponder profile tends to really be consistent, even when you're kind of moving that stuff around a little bit. So what I will say, and this is relating back to the paper, and I think very important, the most effective way to reverse the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype is probably just reintroduce carbs. 
even a very moderate amount. And we actually showed that in the paper. So we had a case series, I think Dave might've alluded to earlier from um, Dr. Tro, where we have five patients who were either lean mass hyperresponders and borderline, and they weren't either comfortable with statin therapy or were intolerant and had tried. And so he put them on an exper experimental protocol of reintroducing 50 to 100 grams of carbs. And lo and behold, the LDLs plummeted. Like this one guy went um, from 665 LDL of 665 to 185, a drop of almost 500 milligrams per deciliter. So minus 480 um, with basically the, you know, same amount of carbs that would be in a small sweet potato. And so literally like, you know, the, the case series is showing a small sweet potato and some LMHRs could have the impact of like what, you know, typically 10 statins would have on top of each other. That is very potent. And we know from some anecdotal data that the, the drugs, while absolutely valid options might not have as potent an effect. Dave, you and I were talking to a medical doctor who was also an LMHR the other day, and he was saying he tried the statin and it had such a minimal effect. And this is not to discourage people from trying as individuals. This is just reporting one person's uh, results that it, he just, like his doctor said, it's not even worth it. Uh, it did drop his LDL, but he was still like at 300 um, or something. So I think the most effective approach would be to reintroduce carbs. And if you're not using ketosis for a therapeutic reason, that's, that's what I would do. Mm -hmm. If I didn't need ketosis for, for my gut, if it didn't make me feel a lot better, I would absolutely at least carb cycle for lean and metabolically healthy. It's probably not harmful. It could be very beneficial. I think there might be benefits to carb cycling. So, um, if I were in a position to be able to adopt that approach personally, I would. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I wonder I'm just thinking of my own experience because I used to follow a moderate to high carbohydrate diet and my lifestyle was relatively similar. I was training, you know, for endurance events essentially. And, uh, my LDL profile, or I'm sorry, my lipid profile hasn't changed really drastically at all. Uh, there's been some, and the, the weirdest one is always, I have gotten a lipid profile like right after a race, like literally I think a day later. And that, that, that makes everything wacky. I think my, 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 all my, my lipids were, were running wild after that. But I think that's pretty typical amongst post extreme endurance athlete, like competition type things, where even if they're not low carb, they're having that is, you got some commentary on that. David's literally rubbing his hands together like a madman. Zach, bring, bring me that data. I want that data. You, you want to see the post race one? Is what you're oh, looking for? Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. I'll like, send you that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll we'll talk offline after this, but yeah, a hundred a hundred percent. I would expect lipids to change, mm -hmm. you know, post marathon. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but while I was training in 2016, I also did uh, post uh, half marathons. I'm not a marathoner to the degree that you are, although I did end up doing a couple marathons. But the even in the post half marathon, what's especially relevant that I hope a lot of people are aware of is inflammatory markers and to be very mindful of that, because of course there's, you know, what you could call false positives. Uh, you do in fact, intentionally inflame yourself when you're, uh, undergoing intensive exercise that is intentional. And of course you do mean for it to be hormetic. You don't mean for it to cause long-term damage, but I don't know if you're aware of this, my highest C-reactive proteins were, uh, 52 and 38, and they were both following like a half marathon, um, where, you know, I was, I was working it pretty hard, but otherwise I'm typically at like 1.0 or below, you know, anything along those lines. 
Um, so yes, that on top of the lipids were data I was very interested in, but I can't run like you can. So I'd be very interested to see what your lipids look like. So I believe it was after a hundred K or something like that. If I remember right, I have to look at the date. I know I have it. It's all, it's all, I can easily fact check which race and how far I went and get you that data as well. So, um, cool. Yeah. That'd be interesting to see. I know I had a buddy who's not low carb, very much kind of skews towards plant-based ultra marathoner. Um, he's not meat free by any stretch, but he's very minimal amount of, of, uh, of meat and very little red meat. And, and he was getting these tests after his races. And he's like, dude, I can't get my cholesterol to get figured out. I think I'm having a problem. I'm like, go, 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 go to test. Like maybe after you have like in the off season and see, right. and see what happens. I, I don't, I don't see a physiological way you're not going to have a higher level of lipolysis in a massive endurance run. I just don't see that. So mm -hmm. per, you know, per the model, really not even the model, but just basic physiology, of course, you're probably trafficking more uh, VLDL to some degree uh, to get around those triglycerides from your fat storage. Again, you've got to power those tissues. And if you've really ran out all of your, you know, glycogen stores, or at least you're, you're more ready glycogen stores, of course, I don't care how high carb you are at, at a long enough distance, you're going to be tapping in. You can't mm -hmm. help them. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that maybe sheds a little bit of light onto that earlier discussion about folks who are on a moderate high carbohydrate diet. Like if they're doing carb positioning in a different way, if they could put themselves into that position on a more frequent basis in training, if they're, if they're, uh, depleting their glycogen and doing it intentionally without replacing despite replenishing at some point later in that day yeah just because of the half-life of ldl i feel like if you're doing replenishments daily you probably wouldn't have the spike if it's like you're going for you know low carb periods of like a week then i think you would probably have temporary increases i think oh. it depends how often you're replenishing um but yeah i just have to sidebar for a second sure I, I'm, not, I'm not someone who notices eyes but I, I just noticed how blue Dave's eyes were. And I'll tell you why. It's because a moment ago when you were talking about your, your distance run and Dave had this like maniacal look, he's rubbing his hands together. His eyes got <laughs> super big. Like, and I just thought about Gollum from Lord of the Rings, like my impression. It was just that, it was that look exactly. Like, wow, Dave, your eyes really blue. They look like Gollum. One lipid profile to rule them all. <laughs> yeah. The, the data, the precious data has to get close enough for me to... You know, I want to make use of it. You know, I would like to round back to risk for a second because I think this is an important part of this story. I mean, part of why we're especially interested in the lean mass hyperspondyl phenotype, as Nick has alluded to from earlier, is a lot of the folks who find themselves in this position, who find that they have this profile, are understandably not comfortable with it. They're, you know, they're talking to their doctors, they're talking to their family, they're going, well, if I don't have to have an LTL above 200 or 300 or 400. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to take steps, you know, find out what it is, particularly if they seem to be relatively moderate uh, to make these changes. Um, but there are a number of folks uh, like Nick who have medical reasons for which they would be as low a carb as they are and may also have some uh, challenges with um, tolerances towards uh, medical options or other things along those lines. And I feel like for those folks, we just, it's high time given the popularity of the low carb diet and how common we're now realizing the lean mass hyperspondyl phenotype is that we study them. And in a roundabout way, it's kind of been, um, 
I think, kind of a gift of science in some respects, because we've never been able to actually see high LDL, high ApoB, and an otherwise uh, typically low cardio uh, metabolically risky context, right? To where basically the one variable of interest is the one that's large and pronounced. And this isn't to say that necessarily it's going to be a good outcome, depending on what it is that we study. We don't know yet. But that's why we started a crowdsourced study, uh, which started a, about three months ago, and uh, for which is now ongoing. Uh, we're, we're excited because we were putting it together through the Lundquist Institute. Uh, in about a year and a half, we'll have longitudinal uh, scans of lean mass and borderline lean mass hyperresponders, and um, uh, there'll be CT angiogram at high resolution so that we can actually see progression longitudinally of plaque and whatever degree of development of atherosclerosis we can observe, that'll obviously be very relevant because again, it's not, it's not so much for those folks who are already comfortable with having high LDL. It's for those folks who are not and are struggling with what uh, they can do about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes, that makes total sense. Cause I think, yeah, obviously if someone decides, Hey, I feel way better on this approach. I don't care what happens to me down the road because of it. That's one thing. But then there's, there's the people, like you said, Dave, who obviously they, they were like, Hey, I'd, I'd like to live a long time too. <laughs> and like finding out like what's, what's going to happen with these. But one question I kind of had about that is um, I think it's cool that you're going to collect that data and get some, some answers to that. But has anyone just given how kind of like, I guess it's not been terribly long amount of time, but somewhat long periods. I mean, have there been people who have been doing those sort of tests kind of on their own that have reported back to you and given any indication as to what direction that may actually lead once you can collect enough data from a larger group of people? There have, and I've been very, very reluctant to, um, even when they've said, you know, feel free to share this in the groups or online or something like that. I've been very reluctant to do anything like that because it's still anecdotal data. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's worth mentioning that it's not, you know, every circumstance of somebody having the triad or that they might uh, look like a lean mass hyperresponder, that it's not all 100% good news all the time. It's exactly the reason why we need to get out of this, you know, as, as you know, is common in the diet sphere. There's just a lot of anecdote picking from, you know, whatever seems to support one person's position. We have to get out of that. We need to get prospective data. Uh, more now than ever before on what we would actually observe in this particular population. So yeah, has there been a lot that's been reported my way uh, privately quite a bit? And there's a lot for which I've um, uh, talked to folks that are especially at the highest of LDL levels. Uh, I try to bring to mind, in fact, if anybody is listening to this right now, what is common for those who have the genetic disease for high LDL, which is familial hypercholesterolemia, especially if your LDL is like say 500 or higher, you want to be mindful of things like xanthomas. Um, you may want to look them up. They're uh, deposits of cholesterol, especially uh, what's more common with um, um, FH or those that are say below the neck, like in the extremities, or uh, of course, a developing angina, any kind of chest pain is something that you'd want to get checked out. Uh, but as always, and as I hope has been kind of an ongoing theme, this is very much uncharted territory and that the vast majority of, you know, institutions and cardiologists and lipidologists would say 
hey, you should default on the expectation that you should take steps to lower your risk. I know if Dr. Tro were here, that's, that's for example, what his opinion would be. Even if, even if there are many of us who might be somewhat cautiously optimistic, it is absolutely a position of uncertainty. And it's, it's again, absolutely a hypothesis and should be treated as such. Mm -hmm. well, Dr. Tro, he was helped out with the paper, right? Am I remembering that correctly? Correct. In fact, it's his case series. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I would think he has seen because I know he he sees a lot of folks with a wide range of approaches within low carbohydrate and probably people outside of low carbohydrate. So it'd be an interesting person to have involved, obviously. But um, cool. Uh, do you guys want to circle back to the paper? Sure, sure. Cool. Uh, so let's uh, let's chat and let's let's be dealer. I'm trying to remember a little bit about just kind of. The what, what is this? Maybe I'll just ask this. What does this paper tell us? And what are the next steps? Well, circling back to kind of the, 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 the mic drop conclusion, I think it's that the it's lean, metabolically healthy people, low triglyceride to HDL ratio that are probably at highest risk for LDL change, which um, identifies the population that, you know, might be at risk, but also conversely states that implicitly the people that are the most common population to be using low carbohydrate diets now, which are people with obesity or type two diabetes are probably not at increased risk for LDL change, which should be very good news for them and their clinicians, because it should remove a barrier or a fear to implement um, implementing this diet in that population, which like I said, is, is probably the biggest population of use at this time. Um, we also showed that the phenotype is reversible with carbohydrate reintroduction, at least in the case series. And, um, and that's the main observation. Um, our, our, our Dr. Uh, Sotomoda, Adrian, our friend, said, and I think I really like this quote, this paper is not about ending a conversation. It's about starting one. And really, that's what it is. This is an observation only. We're working on the lipid energy model paper as we speak. Dave mentioned we have the risk trial ongoing. But prior to the publication of this paper, I think it was something, a phenotype to which a lot of people could turn a blind eye and to which a lot of the medical establishment was just um, naive. And I think that is now changing. I know we talked offline, Zach, about some of the responses I've been getting uh, at, at medical school at, uh, at Harvard and walking through at MGH. And it's really phenomenal to see how interested medical students, medical professors, practicing clinicians are in this phenotype. Not that they think high LDL is safe, of course, but that this is a remarkably interesting phenomenon that deserves future research. And I would basically leave it at that and that the future research um, either is ongoing or, or is, is going to get started. And we have a whole wish list of experiments. Literally, we were writing a wish list today. I have seven on it right now. Um, of experiments that should be done to validate the model and also to assess risk. So I'm really excited for this. And I know Dave is at least equally as excited because this is something that he's been thinking about for six years and, and myself for a little bit uh, of a shorter time. But now to think that, you know, end of 2021 is the beginning of the era of studying LMHR. And for me, that's tremendously exciting. Awesome. Yeah. I think, uh, it's uh, it's just really cool. Anytime we can unpack like a, a variance in, in, in just people and kind of how they are experienced different types of 
dietary patterns, nutrition stuff, because I think I've learned one thing following nutrition. It's that what works for one person doesn't necessarily work for the next. And then how one person responds to one thing, they don't necessarily have another response. I mean, my former coach, Sean Baker, he's basically nothing but meat and he wouldn't even qualify as a lean mass hyper responder from his cholesterol levels are typically, I think the high end of average or the high end of the range, but he's certainly not going well up above, uh, um, well up above like what you're seeing in some of those. So, and, and he would probably be the poster boy of what someone would expect. Who's not really listening to this as someone who would probably have that super sky high LDL or something like that. But, um, you know, and then someone following the same diet might, and it's just like, well, what do you, how do you piece that together at the individual level versus the population level? And it sounds like you guys are looking to kind of put some more pieces of puzzles together that are going to help us kind of understand some of that. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, uh, for what it's worth, uh, not to go off on a tangent, but that's actually been something I've been interested in for a long time. And I do have a hypothesis around it in that I believe people who are doing a lot more muscle mass uh, development, uh, particularly a lot of anaerobic exercise, I think that there's actually a greater degree of endocytosis with, um, with skeletal muscle in particular. Uh, I think that there are also some other factors as well. But that endocytosis in particular could be very relevant, which is why, as it happens, there's actually somebody online who's well known uh, to not only be both low carb, but also to be uh, quite the bodybuilder who's agreed to do an experiment for us. So you're probably familiar with him, JT. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's going to take a break for two weeks. He's agreed to take a break from exercise. He's done this his whole life every single day. And so he's agreed to take a break for two weeks and get blood work for us, uh, both at baseline. And then at the end of the two week period where we're going to have him be sedentary, which I know is a huge <laughs> ask, right? Uh, but I predict, and I'll, I'll immortalize it right here. I predict his lipid levels, if maintaining otherwise about the same amount of food. And, you know, of course we'll need to potentially adjust based on, um, uh, TEE and so forth. Um, I don't know, we'll figure out those metrics, but that I believe all things else being equal that probably his, uh, total and LDL may end up going higher. Uh, but we'll see. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Nick? What do you think will happen? Yeah, I think this is one area where I think we differ a little bit. Um, I, I don't think they will go up as much as you think. I think that your endo, I think the endocytosis hypothesis applies when there's, you know, a, a consistent growth phases, when people are more in a static phase, when they're just doing resistance exercise. Like I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know JT that well, but I think Sean isn't looking to get bigger. He's maintaining and he's strong, but I don't think he's like putting on 10 pounds of muscle per month. Um, I think that there might be other factors contributing to the, the not exorbitantly high LDL that one might expect to see in someone like Sean eating only meat. And maybe it's because he's primarily, you know, or not completely driven. I wonder what his RER is actually. Um, his also runs a pretty high HBA one C, which makes me think there's a lot of gluconeogenesis going on. Hmm. So that's the other, sorry, that's the other counter hypothesis is that, that, that there is probably just a lot more G and G in particular. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think there's so much really fascinating stuff going on. I mean, so many paradoxes in this. I actually just tweeted about a paper this morning. I was reading, um, about, uh, lean people versus obese people on a fast. And there was this really weird thing. Um, that they pointed out in the skeletal muscle in lean people, 
but not obese people. And I'm going to lose some people here. I apologize for that. But they noted that AMPK activity decreases. And the, the reason that's so weird is because AMPK is a cellular energy sensor that tends to become active when there's less energy. So when the um, AMP to ATP ratio goes up, AMPK activity goes up typically. And so during a fast, when you're literally not taking in any energy, one would expect AMPK will become more active. They were saying specifically in lean people, it goes down. Now I have a lot of thoughts about that. And this is kind of tangential, but I just bring it up to provide an example of sometimes things don't act as intuitively as you think they otherwise might. Just like eating more fat while taking your carbs down typically will decrease the fat in your blood, triglycerides, fasting. Biology is not always what it seems. (laughs) So um, I, I, I love these interesting paradoxes. And I think Sean is a remarkable example of human performance outliers. I think he's going to break a lot of stereotypes and predictions. So, yeah, yeah, that is actually an interesting point too, because when you, when you mentioned how little amount of carbohydrates, just relative to the average person's moderate high carbohydrate diet that you would introduce that would kind of pull you back underneath or at least lower than what you would be on the lean mass hyper responder uh, section. uh, I think, yeah, the amount of protein he's getting in every day is far above what he needs from just like a, yeah. a from a muscle building and muscle maintenance standpoint. So yeah, he's he's driving a lot of that gluconeogenesis, which is interesting because for me, you know, I'm averaging when you average in like my lowest carb days during the off season, highest carb days during like my peak training, I'm averaging somewhere between 100 and 150 grams of carbohydrates per day. Uh, you know, that's in the context of averaging around hundred miles a week of training over the course of a year. So like you could almost see like Sean's relative extra amount of protein that's going to end up getting converted into fuel essentially as kind of his hundred to 150 grams of carbohydrate that I'm just getting through carbohydrate that was made. Cause I'm, I've got a similar profile to him in the sense that, you know, I'm in range with my lipid profile outside of doing one for the day after of ultra marathon, of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, which would, you know, eliminate me from being a lean mass hyper responder. Um, despite like other parts of my lifestyle, maybe indicating that that would be something that I'd probably be more susceptible to being. Yeah. I, I'm not, I, I agree. I, I, I think, again, I don't, I don't I'd have to do a deeper dive into to Sean's metabolics, but I, I, if I had to predict that, not knowing you and not knowing your profiles, I would almost guess that you doing the activity you do eating, you know, 80 to hundred grams of carbs would be more likely to be lean mass hyper responder than Sean eating an extremely high protein diet, because yeah, that protein will, um, help support gluconeogenesis to, you know, try, drive a lot of his fuel supply. Um, but I, I should talk to Sean about, about this. I bet you, we, we could make him a lean mass hyper responder. I'm sure yeah. by tweaking yeah. some things, but I don't think he seems to be doing well on his own. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 you know, it's funny though, we're talking about this because, um, Sean would vouch for the fact that I asked him like two, three years ago, I said, if heaven forbid this ever happens, if you get injured and you can't, you know, work out for a little while, will you promise to get some blood work, like toward the end of that period of time? Like, I don't wish this on you, but if it happens, if it happens, if you swing one too many kettlebells, yeah, <laughs> yeah, just, you know, if it happens, it'd just be great, you know, but that's, 
Look, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, it's it's fun pontificating a lot of these things. But as you know, Zach, and it's it's just been a big theme of what I've been doing. I like to just try to do these experiments in an extremely controlled in of one manner, because I I think we're missing a huge like, you know, frontier of looking at these lipid responses as resulting from uh, metabolic pathways and context to better elucidate what the day-to-day variability is and how much that's relevant to this larger question. Uh, For example, I I now have so much more respect for triglycerides in particular. It's a fairly noisy marker, but I like it a lot more now than glucose as noisy markers go as potentially a a strong leading indicator of problems to come. Um, You know, again, with all of the caveats being placed, but that's, that's because I think it can be a strong uh, signal for there being a problem uh, with metabolism if you find that it's consistently high uh, in spite of a context that could better explain why. So you know it's this is what's this what's this is what's kind of exciting about kind of looking into these things and exploring the lipid energy model itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's it's really an interesting place to be exploring this stuff and. I think you should maybe shoot Sean a note and ask him about a specific lipid profile if he has it. I don't know if he tested it or not, but he did do a phase where he was going, I wouldn't say low protein, but low relative to the ratios of fat to protein. I think he was getting up close to 90% fat for, I don't know how long he did, maybe a month or something like that. So I'd be curious if he tested himself during that, if he had a a different profile than he has with his kind of more typical ribeye style setup. Yeah. He looks one-to-one to me. Based, yeah. on, based only on my, my exposure via Twitter. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We see what he eats all the time. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah. Eggs and ribeye, eggs and ribeye. <laughs> awesome guys. Um, are we missing anything here that we should chat about? Do you have another four hours? <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> true. Let's so, stop talking about the limit energy model. No, I think <laughs> um, we'll have to do it at a chapter two. And sure. Three and so on in future. Yeah, it might be. There's probably enough content in this one to keep people busy. And then, yeah, if you guys want to come and chat about uh, lipid, uh, or if you want to come and chat, chat about any of the other stuff in in another another round, that'd be really cool. And I'd love to have you both back. Yeah, that would be great. Um, yeah. And we we've got some great stuff in the pipeline that we'll get to share soon enough. So. Yeah. Awesome. Today. Before I let you guys go, where can listeners find you? I'll link that, uh, that link you sent over Nick to the show notes, but if they want to find out where, what you're up to, where you're sharing info at, what are some spots to, to go to that for that? Well, they can find me at Nick Norwitz on Twitter. Uh, I've been less active recently. Mostly you can find me with my nose in a textbook or tweeting, uh, or texting Dave at like, 4am we'll work out working on our next project because the two places i am either that or if there's a new mcu movie that came out then i'll maybe be at the movies temporarily but other than that (laughs) so yeah at nick norbert's on twitter uh for the time being and um pretty much nowhere else uh yeah you can you can also find me pretty actively on twitter uh at real dave feldman that actually, by the way, is uh, my name changed because it used to be Dave Keto, but now it's just at real Dave Feldman um, and uh, cholesterolcode.com. And if by any chance you find that you yourself are a lean mass hyperspawner and are interested, if you don't mind me doing the plug, 
consider checking out citizensciencefoundation.org and our dedicated page is uh, citizensciencefoundation.org slash study. And there you can see our uh, major eligibility requirements. And uh, yeah, we're still recruiting, by the way. So we have still like another three, four months to go. Perfect. Well, thanks a bunch, guys. Uh, looking forward to uh, some future conversations and everything you guys have coming up. Thanks, Zach. Thanks for having us. Take care. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.